many of you are, are, uh, enjoy camping? Let me see your hands. If you, if you're, okay, you, you and your family camp a lot. You, you are a part of 40 million Americans, nearly 14% of our country that camps and enjoys doing so. Uh, about 15 days a year is the average for every person that camps above the age of six. And so it's, it's a big industry. Uh, whether you are camping, uh, well, in a, in a tent, an RV, a cabin, uh, a bivy, or a yurt, I mean, there are all kinds of places you can stay and things that you can do, and a lot of folks enjoy uh, just getting away and, and spending time outdoors. About 180 miles is the average that people will travel to their favorite camping spot, which is often uh, a, a state park. Now, a step beyond the normal camping is what we call wilderness camping or, or backcountry camping. A backcountry area is general, uh, generally a geographic region that is remote, undeveloped, isolated and really kind of hard to get to. That's what makes it so special. Now what we're going to study this morning is the longest wilderness camping experience found in the Bible and it involves, it involves about two million campers. If you want to turn with me to Exodus chapter 16 and 17, we're going to pick up the story of the Israelites as they've come out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery. Uh, they began their wilderness camping experience with a great deal of enthusiasm. And when chapter 16 opens, they have been on the move for just about one month and they are no longer happy campers. <laughs> they approach the wilderness of sin in the Sinai Peninsula with great frustration. Uh, by the way, the name of the wilderness of sin has nothing to do with unrighteous behavior. Well, what we oftentimes think of as the name sin. No, this area was named for one of the Egyptian idols, the, the moon god, Sin. Even when the Israelites, free from the bondage of their slavery, reach the Sinai Peninsula, they still have these haunting memories of the land they're going through of their time in Egypt as slaves. Now, if you're wilderness camping, by choice, you enjoy the ruggedness of the journey. But all of us this morning find ourselves in wilderness moments throughout life that aren't where we want to be. We all experience the desert times when life appears dry, barren, and hopeless. So my desire this morning is by the time we get done with our study is that we will, we will choose to handle our wilderness moments with a different spirit and outlook than did the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus. So this morning, let's take a look at just a small snapshot of that 40-year period that they spent on this wilderness campout. I'm just going to give you two things really to remember this morning. If you can remember these two things, great. First one is simply this. Grumbling is never helpful. Think you can remember that one? Grumbling is never helpful. For the third time in a month, the Israelites grumbled against God. As they left Elam, where God had miraculously restored this brackish water, they arrived at Elam, they were thirsty, and all they found was these putrid springs. And God miraculously restored the springs from the brackish water to fresh, clean water. They all had their fill and were all refreshed. You'd think, wouldn't you, that if you'd just seen God do a miracle, that by the time you got to a point where you were hungry or thirsty again, you'd say, oh, don't worry, God's going to take care of us. But no. The Israelites are a grumbling mess. They, they got hungry, they got thirsty, they got tired. And Exodus chapter 16, verse 2 opens with these words. 
In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, why, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Now turn over to chapter 17 in verse 1. They're at Rephidim and, and they're thirsty. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Wouldn't you love to be a part of that congregation? No, I agree, no. <laughs> what a mess. It is amazing to me, the extraordinary patience of God with an apparently ungrateful group of newly freed slaves. Grumbling seemed to become their way of life out here in the wilderness. And complaining, complaining is never helpful. Now, before I go any farther, okay, I, I, I want to I add this thought here, okay? Uh, sometimes we, we talk about a term, constructive criticism. I don't really like the term because we have taken the word criticism and, and turned it into such a negative term that it almost seems like an oxymoron, constructive criticism. And I know a lot of people who are afraid to make mention of something that could improve circumstances because they don't want to be seen as being critical. I don't like the term. I, I, think, I think a better phrase would be something like wise counsel or discerning observation. When a person graciously points out problem areas that can be improved, that's wise. Uh, I have no problem with constructive, discerning observations that help us as individuals improve, that help us as a congregation improve, that help us as a community improve. Now, when it's pointed out with anger or harshness, the wisdom can be lost in the presentation. But I'm not talking about constructive criticism, what I'm talking about here. That's not what the Israelites were doing. They weren't, they weren't practicing constructive criticism. They were just grumbling and murmuring and quarreling. It was their way of sending nasty notes to God. Now, what we need to realize is that complaining generally grows out of a sense of discontentment. Don Kistler wrote, he said, the person with the discontented heart has the attitude that everything he does for God is too much and everything God does for him is too little. The Israelites were expressing deep discontent. And would you notice that the intensity of their complaints grew worse? Grumbling is one thing, but quarreling is an attitude that God is insufficient in times of difficulties. Do you see where they had gotten in this process? They'd got to the point where they had determined God was insufficient for the difficult moments they were facing. And that's harsh. Moses warned them that they were testing God. And I'm here to tell you, that's dangerous ground. So be careful with grumbling. And here's some things you see in here about the whole idea of this grumbling kind of complaining. Complaining is contagious. Have you ever noticed how that spreads? Somebody says, Man, this is, a, this is a really hot day. And somebody else who hadn't thought about it yet says, yeah, you're right. It is a hot day. 
I'm really uncomfortable. They didn't know they were uncomfortable until somebody else complained. But then there's this contagious spirit that just seems to spread. Uh, look, look at the newspaper or the, or the news on TV. When's the last time you saw them begin with a positive story? Isn't it always news alert? Flash amount. Here, come, you know, here comes some negative, sad, tragic, bitter story. And it's because, because the negative seems to be so contagious. We, we gravitate toward it because I think we believe that if we can find somebody else who's worse than we are, it'll make us feel better about ourselves. It doesn't, but that's what we oftentimes think. Complaining is contagious. Complaining also distorts the facts. Did you notice what the Israelites said? They said, oh, oh, Moses, I so wish you would have left us in the land of you. Why, we had big pots of food there. We ate till our stomachs were full. That was a good time in our life. Oh, please. They had spent centuries praying that God would free them from their slavery. They've been free one month. And they're already looking back and saying, oh, I would like to go back to Egypt. They had leeks and onions and meat and all kinds of good things there. How quickly we forget. How easy it is when we're feeling negative to exaggerate things, to distort the facts. Grumbling and complaining seldom builds up anybody. Who do you want to be around the person most? The person who says, oh, it's too hot during the summer. And, oh, it's too cold during the winter. Or the person who says, look at the beautiful sunshine that God has sent. Or the person who says, isn't the winter beautiful? We see God's handiwork in every season of the year. Who, who do you want to be around most? I can tell you, we want to be around the person who is positive because that builds up. Negativity and criticism tears down. And complaining demonstrates a lack of faith. So it's contagious. It often distorts the fact. It's destructive. And it demonstrates a lack of faith. Grumbling against God does not move the heart of God. It was not the grumbling of the Israelites that made God respond. It was the nature of God to take care of his children. Parents learn that early on. As children begin to grow and, and develop, they, children begin to manipulate. They just, it seems to be just an inborn quality in kids. Why do you think we call them the terrible twos? It's because that's where the kids are starting to exercise their own freedom and their wants, and sometimes kids will throw a fit and they'll fall on the floor and they'll cry and they'll scream and do all kinds of things. And a parent learns right away that if you give in to that, you've lost the battle. Now, a parent will provide food and clothing and shelter and all the good things because they are a parent. They have a love of their children. They want their children to have what is necessary for life. But you don't give in to the wants. God provided what was necessary for his people, not because they grumbled, but because that's the nature of God, to care for his children. As a matter of fact, this very time period is referenced in Hebrews chapter 3. And the conclusion is that complaining leads to hardness of heart and a loss of standing with God. Complaining leads to a hardness of heart, and a hardness of heart leads to a loss of standing with God. So here's the lesson of the Israelites in the wilderness of sin. Do your best to avoid the sin of the wilderness. And the sin of the wilderness here was they grumbled, murmured, complained, and quarreled with God. Don't forget that when you try to do the right thing, you'll get 
you'll take the heat. There will be people that will criticize you. Do the right thing anyway. Moses was trying to do the right thing. The whole nation grumbled against Moses, but Moses was doing what God had sent him to do, and Moses ended up on the right side of history. So when you do what is right, when you follow God's word, when you try to follow God's way, when you try to put into practice those godly values that make a difference in life, you will be criticized at times. That's okay. Let the criticisms fall off because you will ultimately find yourself on the right side of history. Good people who do the best they can are often criticized. I mean, you're in good company when that happens to you. Uh, President Lincoln was criticized for his Gettysburg Address. The Harrisburg Patriot derided Lincoln's address by referring to his silly remarks. Newspapers including the New York World, the Chicago Times, and the Times of London, and many others scoffed at Lincoln's remarks in the Gettysburg Address. <laughs> uh, on which side of history would you like to be today? Lincoln's side or the newspaper side? I mean, the Gettysburg Address has been heralded for the last umpteen years as one of the greatest public speeches ever. The content is profound. Do your best. Stay with what is right. If you get criticized, don't worry about it. Now, if you get criticized for being lazy, you deserve it. Okay? Be if you're going to be criticized, be criticized for doing your best and doing the right thing. And don't let it bother you because if you're doing what God wants you to do, if you're being who God wants you to be, you'll come out right on the right side of history. Work hard at developing a positive perspective on life. And that too can be contagious and it'll reshape your attitude. <clears throat> a couple weeks ago, Elsie and I were on, uh, uh, attended the North American Christian Convention. Now that's our annual conference for our churches across uh, North America. Uh, it's the only national gathering we have, and it's not a, it's a preaching teaching convention. That's all it is. And I had some responsibilities there, but we got to hear a lot of great speakers. And I think one of my favorites was an author by the name of Bob Goth. He's also a, a professor at Pepperdine University. And I don't know how to describe him to you. He's just kind of a unique speaker. But he tells the story of all these things that have happened to him and, and his shaping of an attitude that's, that, well, he says, try to find the best case scenario in every situation. He said, if somebody says something to hurt you, if somebody does something to hurt you, find the best case scenario. Why, why would they do that? Or why would they say that? Or what's going on in their life that would make them do that? And it will help you deal with those kinds of things. And I heard that. I thought, boy, that's, that's really good. That's a that's a great way to live if you can always look at life with the guest, best case scenario. So over the last couple of weeks, uh, Elsie is, is gently reminding me to take the best case scenario in, in a lot of things that happen in life. And uh, the, the other day we were uh, at a stop sign getting ready to turn right out onto the highway and I was waiting for the traffic to come. And I watched the traffic coming down this way and uh, it looked like the car was slowing down, but I couldn't really tell. There was no signal. And I thought, well, I better not, I better not. And sure enough, it just kept slowing and slowing and finally it makes the turn. You know, you know what I mean? One of those irritating moments, they turn in right where you, you could have been halfway to your destination if you'd have pulled out in front of them if they'd have just signaled, you know? So I pull out and I'm grumbling and mumbling and everything and Elsie says, now what's the best case scenario. <laughs> I thought for a second, I thought, his turn signal's out. It doesn't work. The bulb is burnt out. He was really trying to let me know, but he couldn't because his bulb was out. The only other option to choose was he's an idiot, and I thought I'd better choose. <laughs> the bulb was out, all right? 
I don't know if it was or not, but thinking that. (laughs) Thinking that helped me. It put me in a better frame of mind. I really thought the guy was probably a great guy. He just couldn't get his signal to work. Didn't affect him at all, but it sure did change my perspective. And when my perspective changes, my life changes, and the lives of those around me change because, you see, when I grumble, it's contagious. When I'm upbeat, it's contagious. Who do you think God wants us to be? Grumbling is never helpful. Here's the other point, though, I want you to remember from this story, and that is God is always our source of help. Grumbling is never helpful, but God is always our source of help. God is, his promises are trustworthy, folks. God promised to Abraham, the very first of the Jewish nation, that his descendants would be cared for, that God would get them from wherever to the promised land, that through the nation of Israel, all the nations of the world would be blessed through the coming of the Savior, and God has kept that promise. As a matter of fact, do you know how many promises God has made to humanity in his word? Everett Storms, some years ago, during his 27th reading of the Bible, logged the promises of God to humanity and found that they numbered 7,000 487. 7,487. A vast majority of those have been fulfilled. Now, there's some. We're still waiting. They are future events. But that's an incredible number. If all you knew about God is that he made that many promises to humanity, and, and those up to this point in time have all been kept, It would be enough to know that he is able to provide and care for us in our lives. Just let me ask you, how many promises have you made to God and kept? You see, God is always our source of help in the wilderness moments of life. And God provides in ways that we cannot fathom. Look at uh, Exodus 16 again. This is God's response to the the, the need for for hunger here. Uh, Verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 9. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. Now somewhere off in the distance, not too close, so that his glory would overwhelm them, but God appeared to the Israelites in a visible way to say, I'm here. I'm out in front of you. I am leading you into the future. I can be trusted. So they got a visual reminder from God. And then then it goes on. And then the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread, and then you will know that I am the Lord your God. God provided a daily bread in the substance called manna. From that day on, when the children of Israel woke up in their wilderness campground, There was something white, like coriander seed. It had a sweet honey-like flavor to it. It was called manna. Manna means, what is it? It was divine bread from heaven, and they picked it up and collected it every day. And God told them how much to pick for every person. And if you took too much, or if you saved some of it for a a late-night snack, you know, coming after midnight, it, it, it began to smell, and it was filled with maggots because God was teaching his people Trust me, every day. Don't, don't hoard this. You eat it for the day, I will provide it every day. Now, trust me, 
The only day they could take enough for two days was on Friday because the next day was the Sabbath and that was the day of rest. And God said, you can take enough for two days here because on the day of rest, I don't want you out hunting for the manna. What a, what a beautiful picture that God would provide over and over again. Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer to pray this. Give us this day our what? Daily bread. It's, it's a follow-up. It, trusting God every day. On a few occasions, God also provided quail. He talks about that there. A wind blew in just flocks of coveys of quail. And they would fly low to the ground. The people were able to knock them down. They had meat to fill. Water was always a problem in the desert regions. If they did not camp by an oasis or springs, God would provide water in other ways. On two occasions, God provided water from the rock. And, and on the first occasion, he told Moses to strike the rock, and the rock poured forth with water. All of these things are pointing to Jesus as our provision in this world. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the manna that your forefathers ate in the wilderness. He said, I am the living water. Paul said, as he wrote letters to the church, he said, Jesus is the rock that followed them in the wilderness. All of this was to give us an idea that you can trust God, that he is worthy of your trust. He will provide. If for 40 years God could give his Hebrew people food to eat, water to drink, and by the way, Deuteronomy tells us that the clothes that they wore and the sandals that they wore did not wear out for 40 years. That may have been the longest single fashion run statement of all of history, 40 years. But if he could provide them food and water and clothing, what what is it that you face that he cannot handle in your life today? Jesus said it best in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 6. He says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do your best today and let God handle the rest. He is willing and capable and wants to provide you with what you need to get you through your wilderness moments. God gives us our victories in battle. At the end of chapter 17, the, the Israelites go into battle against the Amalekites. Look at look in verse 8 of chapter 17. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Remember, these are slaves that have just been... This is not an army. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. This is the battle plan. So Joshua fought the Amalekites... As Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went on top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands with the staff of God in it, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Folks, sometimes God fights our battles for us, and sometimes God fights our battles through us and with us. In the case of the Amalekites, the Israelites went into hand-to-hand -hand combat with these bullies of the Bible. The Amalekites were the ISIS terrorists of their day, hated by everybody, and eventually God took them out, just completely took out that whole nation, but not on this day. 
On this day, his people had something important to learn, and that is we need one another. What a bizarre battle plan. You'll win, Joshua, as long as I can keep my staff over my head. What? Who? Only God could come up with a plan like that because it would point to him as the one who gave the victory. But he didn't just give them the victory. He gave them the victory through their efforts. But this is a picture that I treasure. Moses could not keep his hands above his head for hours. Who among us could? So here come Aaron and her, two of his faithful companions in this work of the kingdom there, and each of them on either side held up his hands so that the battle could be won. And you say, what's that teach us? It teaches us everything about who we are as the church, that we need one another, that we cannot do this on our own. Joshua couldn't do it on his own strength. Moses couldn't do it on his own strength. It took everybody working together. If that isn't a picture of what the church is supposed to be, I don't know what is. And and if if this isn't a good picture of what a life group is all about, I don't know what is. This is the reason, excuse me, we get into life groups so that we have these who will come around us as our Aaron and our her and help hold us up during our battle experiences. Here's another lesson to remember, and that is choose your battles wisely. Going up against the Amalekites, that was a smart thing to do. That, That was a fight worth winning. But they were also fighting among themselves. They fought with Moses. They fought with God, which were worthless battles. Uh, Choose your battles wisely. You're not going to win every battle. Some battles aren't worth fighting in life, but some are. When you stand for God and when you stand for the right, when you try to do the right thing, that's a battle worth fighting. All the rest of them are are secondary. Some, Some victories just, well, they just seem empty in the end. In the early 1600s, Great Britain and Holland fought for a long time over control of the Spice Islands and the East Indies. This was the one place that nutmeg grew, and both countries wanted control of the nutmeg market to ultimately bring an end to the costly battle in 1664. And they started this battle in the early 1600s. In 1664, the the British and the Dutch came together and they came to a peace treaty, and, and the In order to maintain control of the Spice Islands, the Dutch relegated to the English another sort of remote island. So when the peace treaty was signed, (laughs) the Dutch got their nutmeg, and England got an island called Manhattan. Now, who do you think came out better at the end of that battle? I mean, the victory of some battles, some victories are just nuts. Some victories have long-lasting impact. Choose your battles carefully. Fight for those matters of lasting godly value. His way and his word are always worth fighting for and taking a stand for. I wish I could tell you that the Israelites learned once and for all at Rephidim that God had faithfully provided and that their complaining was no longer necessary. They didn't. They just kept on grumbling and mumbling, and it cost them dearly during that 40 years. I hope that you and I can profit from their example and that we'll remember these two things. Grumbling is never helpful, but God always is.